Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Robbie Martin. Today we have a guest who I've been reading columns from for quite a while. He is a fellow at the Nation Institute and a writer and contributor to Loblog, which is Jim Loeb's website, who's someone that's been very influential to me and sort of during my research of all the neoconservatives in DC. It's an extremely valuable resource, Loblog, and I recommend everybody check it out. My guest is Eli Clifton, who can also be followed on Twitter, at Eli Clifton. So welcome, Eli. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been um, I've been really into what you've been writing lately, and I and I haven't, you know, I've been checking out Loblog for a while, but um, it was only maybe, I don't know, eight months ago or so where I, I started checking out your stuff. Yeah, it's been really it's been really up my alley. What what kind of subjects you've been covering, especially sort of this dark Islamophobic, um, almost like holy war mentality that that sort of um, has filled out many of the Trump's. Um, I don't know Trump's whole platform is kind of has all these little people and 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 areas which sort of have this dark, you know, um, anti-Islam underbelly to it that. That's strikingly different than the Bush administration, and I think you've done a really great job covering that so far. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> and uh, you know, you've covered Frank Gaffney, um, who's someone I'm particularly curious about and interested in. Um, and um, your most recent uh, article was about. Um, make sure I get his name right. Gorka. Is that how I pronounce it? To the, to, the, to the best of my knowledge, that's that's how he pronounces it. Okay, and and um, so we'll 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 go into all that stuff, and I'll probably save the the Gorka thing for the end because that's um, we'll get into a discussion about this you know this potentially anti-Semitic uh, mindset that's also in the Trump administration. Um, but I guess let's start with the most pressing news. Um, so Flynn, uh, Michael Flynn. National Security uh, Advisor. Is that was his was his official position, or did he have? Uh, uh, I believe that was his official position. Okay. Yes. So he resigned um, not more than forty eight hours ago. Um, he, he wrote a resignation letter, and allegedly it was because Trump sort of forced him to resign um, out of embarrassment. And you've been writing a lot about. Well, I don't know if you've written a lot about Flynn, but you've been writing about Flynn um, in different way, you know, different areas other than his alleged connections with Russia. But it seems like um, this is all centering around his backroom dealings, um, secret, you know, conversations trying to negotiate sanctions removal with Russian officials before um, Trump took office. Now. In my mind, that seems to be one of the least worrisome aspects of Flynn. I mean, even if he technically broke the law here, um, that he was trying to enable some kind of detente with Russia in in whatever you know way he was doing that. Um, But you know, there's there's a lot of different takes coming out about this. There's a, a lot of people right now are saying that the neocons wanted Flynn out, that they were trying to get him out. And now that they, they've gotten him out. Um, so first, I don't know, give me your, your initial reaction to this, this resignation 
what it can mean and what you think of that, you know, take that, that the neocons wanted Flynn out, that he's anti-neocon, I hear people saying. Speak on that a little bit. Well, I mean, I, I've certainly heard that argument as well, that, that the neocons pushed, uh, pushed him out. Uh, sort of two, two things immediately leap to mind. First of all is that um, it, it sort of uh, pushes one's ability to, to, to believe – it really tests one's uh, uh, gullibility, I think would be the term I would use, uh, to, to believe that Mike Flynn really conducted these phone conversations uh, in a vacuum and didn't uh, include anybody else from the administration – in this communications, uh, or inform them that he had made these phone calls. That's just that's terribly convenient for everybody else involved uh, to say that Mike Flynn did this alone and he and and and, and him only uh, are responsible. And and so far, I think that 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 while his resignation was, they attempted to frame it in that way. It, I, I don't worked, uh, that now we've had calls for investigation. We've had uh, Senate Republicans starting to express some concern with what happened. And, and I think that there is a desire to try to uh, figure out if there's more to this story than just Mike Flynn acting on his own. All that said, Mike Flynn has shown terrible judgment in the past. Um, as I've written about, you know, the people that he was getting his news from and information from on Twitter were, were essentially conspiracy theorists. Um, he was following the types of people who were pushing the Comet Pizza uh, uh, conspiracies. Uh, I, you know, I found a video of him talking about uh, reading off of Twitter at some at some uh, event where he was speaking, saying how you know he was seeing on Twitter that Trump was had actually won the election by millions of votes, and that and that the reports uh, that he had only won the electoral college but failed to carry the popular vote were were simply false. So this is somebody who who doesn't always have. Um, the best uh, uh, doesn't always follow best practices in, in any possible sense. It's also not that hard to believe that he wound up in this situation. Now, as for neocons pushing him out, I mean, I, I realize that, that that neocons, you know, are, are certainly. I, I believe a lot of them are happy to see uh, Flynn out. Uh, certainly, people like Bill Crystal, I think, are, uh, are consider this to be a relief. Um, but but I think that there's also a. Uh, uh, a temptation, especially on the left, to ascribe anything that the neocons are happy about uh, as being uh, something that uh, that we should show caution towards. Uh, and in this case, I think that you know, in in this case, for the most part, people were aligned in the fact that everybody was afraid of Mike Flynn. He seemed like a person who who was simply just not qualified for the job, uh, and 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 was engaged in recklessly hawkish behavior. His comments about putting Iran. On, on notice, um, I, I don't think we're welcomed really in any quarters. Um, so, I, 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 th I think, yeah, there are, are folks who who would qualify as neoconservatives who are happy to see Flynn go, and they are definitely going to try to push their own agenda and get somebody who they can work with better, like David Petraeus, in at this point uh, to fill that vacuum that the resignation has created. Um, but so far, I haven't seen. Uh, strong evidence to suggest that they were behind Flynn's ouster. That would seem to have been a combination of pressure coming down on the White House from uh, these intercepted communications uh, and the White House's efforts to distance themselves from what might be a snowballing scandal. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, it definitely seems like this is a moment where uh, 
that everybody smells blood in the water. Um, I mean, I, I was, I don't know if I saw this last night, but I woke up, uh, this morning to, uh, watching a video of Mitch McConnell saying they're going to start doing congressional investigations into all the Trump Russia connections. Um, which I mean, seems like it exactly. could be a, a path to him and a possible impeachment proceedings. Um, I didn't realize it would go that far that quickly. So that's, that was really interesting to me, but this idea that the neocons form one giant consensus now where they all agree on everything, they're all on the same page, doesn't necessarily seem to be true anymore. And I don't know if it was really ever completely true. I mean, a lot of these people that come from Project for the New American Century and sort of that iteration of neoconservatism, they've disagreed on many different things over the years. Um, one of the earlier ones seemed to be uh, going to war with Iran. Um, there was a neoconservative that my friend interviewed um, named Jonathan Kay, who worked for uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And sort of when my friend was asking him about his neoconservatism, he kind of backed away from the label and said, you know, I don't consider myself that anymore because most neoconservatives now uh, subscribe to the idea that we need to take out Iran and I, and I can't go there with them. So, um, you know, that's just a, that was a minor difference, I guess. But it seems like, you know, f we have Michael Flynn, who's co-written a book with one of what I would consider one of the most egregious neoconservatives, Michael Ledeen. So if the neocons were against people like Flynn, um, why do you think neocons like Michael Ledeen were not? And what does that mean um, for what Flynn really is? Well, I, m my sense is that, you know, the neoconservatives writ large, which is a hard thing to do. Because as, as you just pointed out, there certainly are factions within them, and there are meaningful let's see um, w within that community. But in, in the case of if I had to speculate about why Michael Ledeen, for instance, uh, seems to have had such an influential uh, uh, relationship with uh, Mike Flynn, including, as you pointed out, co-authoring his book. Uh, and if you read the book, it really looks more like Michael Ledeen wrote it than Mike Flynn. Uh, it, it's it's that it's opportunity and 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 the neoconservatives I think like many uh, 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 groups or or sets of interests in Washington uh, will actively try to influence uh, anyone or and any politicians that they can access to and 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 I think that uh, what we're looking at is that they're seeking to gain influence where they can. And that's true of, I think, a lot of interest groups in Washington. And the thing that people often don't realize about Washington is that um, there are some odd bedfellows that occur <laughs> because it's not about, you know, a broader movement and, and strong, you know, uh, uh, you know, battle lines that are drawn between groups and individuals. Um, people try to seek influence on individual issues and on individual people. And Michael Ledeen seeking to influence uh, Mike Flynn, I think is, I think that's more just a reflection of Washington. Uh, and the fact that now we have neoconservatives celebrating Mike Flynn's departure um, is also uh, a good example of Washington at its either best or worst, which is that people are opportunistic and you try to uh, turn every situation to, to one's best advantage. Yeah. Um, I, I'm pretty in line with that that um that thought i mean it seems like the the one thing that michael Ledeen and flynn have the most in common and this is coming from someone who hasn't actually read the book um 
and I, I think I remember reading uh, Jim's article about how the book was mostly seemed like it was in Michael Ledeen's voice, um, which, you know, it seems pretty likely from just the, the little sections I've read from it. Um, but it seems like um, there is sort of a wing of neoconservatism that is a minority now that are virulent and um, out of control Islamophobes to a to a level that um, almost has more in common now with the alt-right than it does what is the modern, the newest iteration of neoconservatism. Um, uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, that book was a very good example of that in that it showed this very casual disregard for any meaningful uh, cleavages or even conflict between uh, Sunni and, and, and Shiites between uh, Iran and and other uh, uh, other Gulf countries that are Sunni, uh, between Iran and uh, Sunni radical terrorist groups, uh, it sort of grouped them all in together and kept you know repeating these mantras about how Iran is the biggest state sponsor of terrorism, uh, while sort of actively ignoring the fact that while some of the biggest and most effective and most dangerous terrorist groups. Uh, come out of, of of the Sunni Gulf kingdoms, and I mean it, it's it's that sort of a disregard that that I think actually uh, has existed for quite a while, and uh, I think you really hit the nail on the head is is where the Islamophobia, uh, which has now permeated the alt right, uh, may have originally come from. That these were you know these self styled terrorism experts um, that. I don't actually think most of them were neoconservative, but sort of uh, took in, certainly took support and were given uh, a platform in many cases at places like the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and the American Enterprise Institute, um, and were even given speaking positions at places like APAC. Uh, and and these are people who who have you know gained a foothold within not just the alt right, but earlier within the Republican Party in a way that a number of us have been following for for years now. Uh, and it's shocking to see them now in positions of really great influence and power in ways that, um, in all honesty, five, six years ago, uh, two years ago, uh, most of us would have found completely unthinkable. Yeah, I mean, it, in my mind, some of this stuff that the alt-right is now really behind and, and people like Frank Gaffney and Michael Flynn sort of adopted this point of view, it, it seems to go back to... Um, uh, the era of the Bush administration when Paul Wolfowitz was bringing in people like Mil, uh, I think her name is Lori Milroy. Am I getting that right? I think she, that's right. Yeah. Where she was basically putting onto the official record. I think she even did at the nine 11 commission hearings that Iraq was behind the 1993 world trade center bombing and subsequently probably behind every other terrorist attack that was actually attributed to Al Qaeda. Um, so it was kind of muddying the waters back then that, you know, Iraq is the source of all, you know, these different Islamic terrorist attacks. And then James Woolsey ran with that. Um, so it kind of reminds me of what you're describing is that all terrorism emanates from U Iran now as sort of the angle that they're leaning on. And it's almost the opposite approach to what someone like Kim and Fred Kagan do at the Institute for the Study of War, where they really try to, you know, I guess the only positive thing I could say about their think tank is they unpack all the nuances of all the different factions, um, you know, and they paint a more yep, absolutely more nuanced and detailed, you know, arguably more accurate picture. They definitely do spin, and they're funded by defense contractors, but they're not doing this cartoonish 
a representation of like a country like Iran is the source of all terrorism. Um, and, and I think that's the very interesting, you know, divide you just described there, which is that people like Kim and Fred Kagan, you know, if, if I had to put a label on them, I would say that they are probably, you know, on the intellectual wing of the neoconservatives. They are, you know, they're fundamentally intelligent people. Uh, I don't agree with some of the conclusions they draw, but, um, you know, they're engaging in this in a, you know, in an adult manner. And, and I think that in, in some ways, although certainly with the invasion of Iraq and with people like Lori Miller, we weren't seeing, you know, this, these sort of smarter voices uh, that, that understood nuance or, or cared to give it a voice come forward. Um, but I think that the movement has undergone uh, sort of a know-nothing um, uh, 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 direction over the past several years, where people, people like, um, uh, like, like people like. Gorka, people like uh, uh, Frank Gaffney are, are given more and more and more voice and influence, and 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 they're fundamentally sloppy. I mean, they do things like grouping together the entire you know Islamic world uh, when they talk about the sources of terrorism. Uh, these are people who who talk about yeah, who casually talk about Iran being um, you know the biggest source of terrorism facing the United States. Uh, it's it, it, it's it's a sloppiness. I think there's an Islamophobia that that, that undergirds a lot of it, um, and that's really the only way to explain it. Is that you know when you're choosing to speak and to paint with such a broad brush, um, you know you're obviously just not trying very hard to to bring out nuance or to share that type of knowledge with others. Yeah, and and then just nuance aside, I mean that some of the things I've actually heard Flynn say come out of his own mouth um, are are just very dangerous. Uh, things to say and and to believe, especially if you're sitting in an official government position. I mean, I've seen him tweet and say things like all, you know, pretty much saying that all 1.7 billion Muslims actually follow a secret political, radical political ideology. It's not a real religion. And they're all potential, potential sleeper agents, basically. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. He's referred to Islam as, as, what is it, not a religion. It's a political movement or something. Yeah. And yeah. I, and I, it just blows my mind that there are a lot of people who are more to the left who are, you know, kind of really upset that he's leaving because they, you know, they were really hoping that somehow he would be the key to this detente with Russia. But I mean, regardless of if that's what you wanted or not, he, he seems like a very dangerous person that that should be out of there. Um, Absolutely. And, 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 I, and I have to say that the desire for him to, to, to be the guy who was going to bring a detente with Russia I mean, I, I guess I can understand where that hope would come from, but when you look at this guy's track record and the stuff he's said and done, even if that's something that he actually wanted to accomplish, I, I don't think a reasonable person can say that this is the person who was going to do it. Well, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's basically re, 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 yeah. Regardless of how you feel about the concept of a detente with Russia, do you really think Mike Flynn is the guy? Yeah, I mean, especially after this, if he. If he didn't even realize, if he, I mean, and I, if I understand his history correctly, he actually should have known better that this, a call like this to the Russian ambassador would, would be monitored by U.S. Right. intelligence. And, so, in high likelihood was being monitored, was being monitored legally. Uh, he was very likely to be caught up in that conversation and that the actions he was undertaking were both unethical and quite possibly illegal. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, for a lot of different reasons, he is very sloppy. Um, shouldn't shouldn't hold the position, um, but that doesn't mean he's going to be replaced with someone 
necessarily better. Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. And you know, I understand the concern that some people have also about the role that the intelligence agencies played, obviously, in you know gather- in the signal intelligence that went on uh, and in ultimately taking actions by, by I guess, sharing it with the, the FBI that uh, – bringing about Mike Flynn's ouster – all, all of that said, I think there's also, though, a bit of a knee-jerk reaction on the left to, at this point to wanting to defend him because of his uh, what's per, people's belief that he was going to help reach a detente with Russia. Uh, and I think that that's a very dangerous reason to excuse all of these, you know, clearly concerning and troubling facts about this guy. This is somebody who was just not qualified for this position. Uh, and just because you agreed with him on one issue is hardly the reason to come to his defense now. Well, it's kind of takes on sort of that Rorschach politics that certain people on the left or maybe libertarian people have with Trump, where they latched onto all his sort of anti-war stuff that he said. Exactly. And not, you know, and didn't listen to the, that he said he was going to kill terrorist families, that he was going to put a Muslim ban. They let that sort of, you know, pass by them. Um, But there's some, there's another angle to this and we'll get, I'll get off the Flynn uh, point after this because I know we don't have too much time um, left, but the... This idea that, and I see a lot of people who I wouldn't even consider conspiratorial minded, including someone who I would characterize as kind of a, a new neocon, um, Eli reporter Eli Lake, is also sort of peddling this theory that in some fashion or another, the deep state uh, itself is what got Flynn out. And the deep state is trying to unseat and delegitimize the Trump presidency. And a lot of people are throwing around the phrase deep state now, um, which is a relatively new thing. Um, and I don't, I don't know what to think about that. I mean, obviously, on some level, these leaks did come out from, must have come from some, somebody in the intelligence sector. But what, do you, what is your opinion on that? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I certainly saw Eli Lake's reporting. I, I see Donald Trump this morning was actually tweeting it out uh, approvingly. Uh, and it's no secret that Donald Trump since, well, before he was elected, was uh, in pretty much open conflict with the intelligence agencies. Uh, and and it, is, it is scary to see the intelligence services acting in this manner and being in all likelihood if there are further investigations and if this scandal does metasize, uh, they will be very, you know, active actors in it. Uh, now, I think that that's also not a reason to excuse the things that they're calling to light. Uh, and, and, and I think that that's, that that's where sort of the, the polarization of, you know, of partisanship and of either supporting or opposing Trump starts to become problematic is when people say, well, I'm, you know, the intelligence agencies have done bad things and I'm afraid of them. And I don't like that, that, that they have probably overreaching uh, surveillance capacities at this point that they can use legally or at least extrajudicially are troubling. But that also shouldn't excuse the things that we're learning about Donald Trump and his advisors, uh, and 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 that's a t- that's a tough you know balancing act for for most people I think to, to hold in their heads at the same time, uh, you know as for is the deep state coming after Donald Trump I guess it depends how you define the American deep state I've you know studied it more in Turkey than in the United States, uh, but. Uh, my sense is that, yeah, to some degree, that there is an active effort going on from within the intelligence community 
to bring to light the information that they've been privy to and that they've shared with the FBI uh, and that presumably will either be going to some sort of an independent investigation or to the Justice Department. Uh, so, I mean, I, I guess my answer is I kind of see both sides of it. Uh, it is scary because we are getting to see the intelligence agencies effectively participating in, you know, in domestic United States politics, which is something they aren't supposed to be doing. Uh, but thus far, the ways that we've heard that they have uh, found themselves uh, privy to this information would fall within what we consider to be their role in monitoring you know, communications coming in and outside, in and out of the country, and from foreign individuals. Yeah, it's all which, which, which brings us back to how ridiculous it is that Mike Flynn thought that this conversation wouldn't be monitored. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite um, an upside down world. When I actually agree with a, I mean, I rarely, I can't even remember agreeing with an Eli Lake article. But as I was reading it, I was really struck by some of the language he was using um, sounded more like someone who, you know, would people would describe as being on the radical left or something. He was, he was using terms like um, this is more the actions of a banana Republic or a police state. I think even, even uh, paraphrased an occupy chant. He said, this is what a police state looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't help but kind of agree with him. I mean, if another, let's say this is someone other than Donald Trump, any any future president going into the office now is going to have this in mind. If this incident leads to impeachment, especially, that this could happen to them, um, that they have to be really careful uh, because someone in the intelligence agencies could be working against, actively working against them. Um, oh, absolutely. But and I and I think even the scarier thing is if you put it in a broader context, looking back over the past, let's say, six months, which is to show that it would seem as if the intelligence community uh, seems to find you know, plenty of things concerning uh, about Donald Trump, whereas the FBI, there were at least factions with the FBI that were actively, it would seem, working to sabotage Hillary Clinton. <laughs> and that's even, I mean, so we're looking at a situation where we have, you know, effectively different, you know, components of the deep state at odds and both working to uh, to, to undermine uh, you know political candidates or to support them. It's 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 pretty scary when you see it that way. It is pretty scary, and and I I just want to briefly mention <laughs> the whole PizzaGate fiasco because I think it ties a little bit into this this subject because I would argue that um, someone from with a, either the FBI or someone from law enforcement leaked things. Um, in order that, I mean, not, not that started that whole fiasco, but it helped fuel it. Um, there was stuff coming out before the election saying that the NYPD and FBI were about to make arrests uh, in the Anthony Weiner case, like arrests, plural. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to really create a lot of fuel um, for that Pizzagate conspiracy theory. And I feel like that must have, well, now that there have been, I guess, some announcements of arrests, that must have actually come from somebody... Um, well, I mean, with the Anthony Weiner thing, even the the announcement that they had reopened the investigation because of Anthony Weiner seemed like a very odd announcement for the FBI to be making. The FBI, as a rule, does not comment on ongoing investigations. That's not their job. It's their job to turn it over, you know, the conclusions of it to a prosecutor who decides if they're going to pursue it or not. But the FBI in in you know probably 99% if not more of cases i mean as a rule they simply don't comment on ongoing investigations maybe if an investigation is over they'll say it's concluded 
But for very good reason. They're not supposed to be talking about it when they're engaged in an active investigation, let alone putting out you know, press releases about it. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I, you know, while that was going on, part of me was wondering where was it being fueled from? You know, I had a, I did another podcast with somebody from Shadowproof named Daniel Wright, and his theory was that it has, it had just an internal motor, that it was just a collective sort of consciousness of the alt-right sort of feeding off of each other. But now I kind of wonder if, you know, someone inside, on the inside sympathetic to Trump was helping fuel it, at least in part, because it really did take on a, a life of its own. I mean, like you even mentioned earlier, Michael Flynn's son and Flynn himself kind of got caught up in it. So, um, Well, yeah, it was certainly with the Comet Pizza stuff. They, his, his son was involved and Mike Flynn was following people on Twitter that were pushing that. Um, so it, it, it certainly took on a life of its own either – with the assistance of the Trump campaign or it influenced the Trump campaign. Uh, it was sort of a chicken or egg thing. Either way, uh, it, 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 it took on its own political um, uh, roles and, and, and direction uh, within the Bureau, and that, that was troubling. And, and now we're seeing you know, something that maybe if you want to compare it to it, you could, coming out of the intelligence agencies with the leaks. Uh, and the leaks are, you know, they are quite surprising that we're seeing these leaks. I, I'm not, uh, um, and, and I and I certainly can share people's concerns with them uh, as for why they're being leaked as opposed to just being handed over to the FBI. I wonder if there's a fundamental, you know, rift that's gone on there between the intelligence agencies and the FBI. We're, we're members of the intelligence agencies who have the information that they believe would be uh, or needs to be looked at closely in an investigation. Fundamentally, don't trust the FBI to execute that investigation. And it kind of harkens back to some of the sort of, um, you know, uh, the official record or, or the Bush administration language of what happened on 9-11, that a lot of these intelligence agencies didn't trust each other back then. Like the CIA wasn't sharing information with the FBI. Um, but it, I mean, it seems like this rift is, is really um, coming into... <laughs> Uh, it, it has gotten wider, I guess, over time. Um, Absolutely. So that's that's something that needs to be studied more. Um, uh, unfortunately, as the public, it's hard to know r really what's going on because we're, it feels like we're kind of being manipulated, um, you know, by with these leaks to some extent. We we can't see the full picture. We don't have all the information they do. So they're sort of leaving breadcrumbs out there to you know get us to follow them in in these directions and. I guess right. If, I mean, I, I mean, we still don't even know who the other alleged Trump campaign officials were who were caught up in this surveillance, and we haven't, and we don't know what the contents of these transcripts show. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that's going to be the coup de grace for all this. They're actually going to just release those, release the transcripts, and just at, put them in a really point, difficult position. At this point, it wouldn't surprise me if we see them maybe sooner rather than later. Yeah. I mean, it seemed it's. I was watching some CNN stuff about it and just other mainstream media coverage, and there it seemed like some of the reporters had already been given transcripts uh, behind the scenes, or they had parts of them, and they were and some or or, or they'd been shown them on background with strict rules. Uh, yeah, it, it, it it's some of the ways it was reported kind of seemed like that to me, where it's possible if I was a journalist who was being offered these types of 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 salacious information, I might say. Uh, you know, you can only report so many times, you know, with confidence that an intelligence official told you X. At a certain point, you're going to want to see some deep background. 
of you know can you show me something to 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 show that there's some veracity to to what you've to, to the story you've been spinning here yeah well i feel like um we should probably move on to uh frank gaffney now um mm -hmm. and i guess let's just start out giving a uh, why don't you give some background about him what his you know i don't know if you would characterize it as a think tank or not but what what that organization does and what is his relationship to the Trump administration and to Steve Bannon? Um, mm -hmm. Well, the, the Center for Security Policy, his organization that he started, I think, in the late 80s, is uh, – it, it actually – most people think of it as being dedicated to Islamophobia and to these harebrained conspiracy theories that Frank Gaffney spins about the infiltration of the U.S. government by the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and blaming uh, any number of people, including uh, Grover Norquist, the Republican anti-tax crusader, and Hillary Clinton's aide, Huma Abedin, as being Muslim Brotherhood operatives. Uh, he also accused a board member of the American Conservative Union, Suhail Khan, of being, of being in on this conspiracy. Um, really out there stuff. So that grabs the headlines. But the truth is, is that Center for Security Policy devotes a lot of time and energy to pushing for uh, – uh, pushing back against sequestration efforts against the defense budget and and pushing for uh, costly costly weapon systems uh, including missile defense they've pushed for efforts to for missile defense against electromagnetic pulse attacks which is you know some real science fiction stuff wow um, they they actively push for 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 the for contracts for for major US defense contractors like Boeing um, and as I disclosed a year or two ago, uh, I, I got their donor rolls, and it showed that uh, defense contractors, all pretty much all the major U.S. defense contractors, aerospace contractors, were, um, were 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 giving financial support to the to his organization. And to be clear, I don't think they're doing it for the Islamophobia. I think they're doing it for the defense contracts. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, and I talked to a number of their spokespeople off the record as well as on the record, and the sense I got from all of them is that if they had it their way, he would drop the Islamophobia. It's not of interest to them, uh, and it's a source of some embarrassment. Uh, but over the years, he's developed, he's dug in more and more and more on these uh, Islamophobic conspiracies. Uh, and, and for the most part, people thought that this was his, you know, he was on the trajectory to obsolescence, uh, that this was a great way to, he, he was banned from CPAC for the Conservative Political Action Conference, uh, for the fact that he'd been attacking board members of the organization. Um, and he was really a loon. And uh, it must have been, was it 2013, that uh, that he was, uh, that, that Steve Bannon actually came to his rescue and held this side event for at CPAC for Islamophobes who had been banned from CPAC. Uh, and, and, and Gaffney and Bannon go back a ways. Uh, Gaffney, when he lost his, I believe it was a weekly column at Washington Times, uh, was given a column on Breitbart, presumably by Bannon, to push, I mean, he published a piece there talking about how the Missile Defense Agency's logo under the Obama administration looked like it had morphed to incorporate the Islamic Star and Crescent. I mean, this is stuff where, uh, I mean, it's just, it's laughable. Um, but this is where he was able to publish this stuff, was on Bannon's website. Uh, and then we see when the Trump campaign first started to talk about a Muslim ban, they referenced uh, both the Center for Security Policy and a poll that the Center for Security Policy had undertaken 
which allegedly showed uh, sympathy for, for, for violence uh, against the state and against non-Muslims from American Muslims. Now, that poll, it turns out, was undertaken by Kellyanne Conway uh, and oh, wow. was highly unscientific. So, I mean, it was a, it was a web-based opt-in survey, which is considered essentially garbage polling. Wow. Wait, so, so let me get this straight. Is this the same poll that a lot of new atheist uh, people were spreading around um, that showed like Muslim support for ISIS or, or was that a different poll? I don't know which one which one you're referring to. I do know this is the one that when the Trump campaign issued a statement, their first and only official statement about the Muslim ban, the two sources they pointed to were Frank Gaffney and this poll. They say the poll was actually commissioned by Frank Gaffney, and it was commissioned to have Kellyanne Conway, who was at that point mm. working on the Trump campaign, uh, uh, to do it. Well, that's that's fascinating. It's a very I, closed feedback loop there. Yeah, if I mean, I think it's the same poll that I'm thinking of, and and it it from what I remember, it went viral. It went beyond just you know people who were Islamophobic and kind of. Um, spread around to a lot of more liberal liberal circles um interesting so but I, but I mean what I find to be the fascinating thing is this was the roots if you can find a, you know a real uh you know point at which the Trump campaign appears to have clung on to the idea that there needs to be a ban on people from Muslim countries entering the United States this was it uh and they laid out their evidence and their evidence was the Center for Security Policy and the poll that Center for Security Policy had had com- had commissioned Kellyanne Conway to do. So th- that's it, and that and that's pretty cl- a pretty clear you know that gives you a pretty clear sense of the influence that Frank Gaffney's organization and I suspect Frank Gaffney himself have over this administration. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the ideas are are very similar, um, and and I think Frank Gaffney has officially denied that he has. Any sort of advisory role is that true that he's he's not admitting uh, he, to anything? He, he has denied that. He denied. I believe that was early on. It had to do with the campaign that there was a rumor okay. that Frank Gaffney was an official advisor on the campaign, and uh, he denied that that was the case. And you know, I'm, I'm I'm willing to believe that he was not an official advisor on the campaign, or for that matter, that he's not an official advisor at the White House. He's maybe not on the White House's payroll. I think he has a lot of influence, though, and I think that that's pretty clear through the Muslim ban. And now Frank Gaffney is pushing for this effort to uh, to, to put the Muslim Brotherhood on the foreign terrorist organization list. And you'll see that that very much comes out of the Center for Security Policy. This is something that Frank Gaffney has been pushing for for a long time. Uh, and r- actually, right before the administration started to show an interest in doing this, he, he put together this, uh, this AstroTurf interfaith group of, of pastors and I think one rabbi uh, urging for the, 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 the listing of the, of, the, of the Muslim Brotherhood on the foreign terrorist organization list. So he's always one step ahead of the administration on, on, on these policy matters. But it, it seems like it's a very clear path you can track between things that Frank Gaffney and the Center for Security Policy propose and issues that uh, Trump and his closest advisors embrace. Yeah, I very much agree with that. Um, I mean, it, it seems like most of, you know, besides Pamela Geller, who's not really writing things similar to Frank Gaffney, his, his stuff is a lot more, It's it has this quasi-intellectual 
guys to it where it's it's all broken down um even some of the video segments that come out of his organization are almost like you know if breitbart itself was trying to produce um think tank uh, short videos about islam i mean that's what they look like to me yeah Um, and there was a recent thing where he got really upset and started using the term fake news to describe the new york times he claims he got taken out of context and, and was made to look like a bigot referring to Muslims as termites in a New York Times article. Did you see this? I did, I did not see this. Okay. <laughs> but what I thought was interesting about it is even if you put the quote back in context, they did, they did kind of take it out of context a little bit. But he, he was trying to say, no, look, this is what it was actually saying in context. Um, it still looked really bigoted and Islamophobic. So I thought that was interesting that he made such a big stink over that one you know, even in the context he meant it to be in, it was still um, a pretty bigoted thing to say. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'll have to pull up the article for you, but I think it was actually about the Muslim Brotherhood designation. I'm not, I'm not sure. Huh. I mean, th- this is something he's wanted for a very long time. <laughs> and, you know, and, na- and now we're finally seeing him with an administration that listens to him. Uh, and the, what I find, but as I say, what I, I keep saying I find so shocking is that, you know, this is somebody who was really on the outs. He was on the fringe of the Republican Party. He had been banned from CPAC. That event that Steve Bannon put on for Frank Gaffney, Pamela Geller was on that panel too. I mean, and for that matter, Pamela Geller was also writing columns for Breitbart. So we're seeing some of the most extreme fringe discredited voices um, being brought in to, to, it seems, to advise this administration's policies. Yeah, it does seem that way. I mean, Bannon um, can be included in that, I guess. I mean, he seems to have um, more of an actual crusader mentality when it comes to Islam. I mean, openly so. Um, and, you know, there's, I think, I, I don't know if it was the New York Times who wrote an article describing Bannon um, as having a dark view on Islam. Um, it, it, go into Bannon's uh, views on Islam and just the things he said about, you know, yeah. that the culture of civil or the clash of civilizations, there's going to be an inevitable, you know, clash that's going to be way worse than what we've seen after 9-11. I mean, what, what, is, what should we worry about about Bannon's uh, worldview? Absolutely. I mean, Bannon in in multiple interviews, and I believe he gave voice to these in probably his most most in depth way in this uh, conference that was being held at the Vatican, and he, he appeared via Skype for. Um, but you know, he's he certainly buys into this idea. Uh, actually, a couple ideas. One is that is that is that we're actively engaged in a war of civilizations between Islam and the Western world, and this is the type of thing that you know Bernard Lewis and a number of 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 neoconservatives uh, of hawks buy into. Um, it, it's not that rare uh, a concept. The question is, where do you want to go with this? Uh, and and in and in that regard, I think he kind of you know has has tipped his hand a little bit with his uh, alleged comments saying that he's a Leninist, that he wants to tear down the institutions. Uh, this is somebody who's fundamentally destructive, and he embraces those urges. Uh, yeah, yes, the, the world is, is at war and doesn't want to acknowledge it, and, and he wants to, to, to bring that into the open, uh, clearly through, uh, through, through violence, if not through government policies. 
Uh, and as I mean, and he also has shown you know a fundamental disregard for existing institutions, a desire to tear apart organizations like NATO, to 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 it would appear to tear apart NAFTA if that can be done, uh, to to certainly sideline the TPP, regardless how you feel about it. There's a certain consistency here with him that uh, bilateral and multilateral agreements are things that he considers to be problematic uh, and 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 they're worthy of being destroyed not not improved upon uh, he, this administration and I you know I think it's safe to say at this point that that Bannon influences where this administration goes and what Trump believes and says to a large degree uh, has shown a, a fundamental either misunderstanding or animosity towards concepts uh, you know uh, about international trade about the United States being engaged in the world uh, I, I mean if, name an institution or or a uh, agreement made uh, outside, made with another country that this administration hasn't shown uh, hostility towards, and, and I think probably a lot of that can be tracked back to Bannon and his uh, and his worldview and his desire that you know if the world is at war that we need to bring this into the open, um, which I think goes back to the pushing for we need to call radical Islamic terrorism radical Islamic terrorism and name our enemy. Um, that's the first step you take if you're going to then try to declare war on your enemy. Uh, and, and, and his animosity, as I say, which I think you can track into other, other spheres of policy uh, with regards to uh, you know, the relationships with other countries. So Bannon's um, – he's you know, incredibly – like he, he acts like he's some kind of rebel who wants to tear down the system and uh, – but simultaneously, well, I, I guess I should say uh, he has he definitely has more of an ethno-nationalist world worldview. He, he's, he's used a lot of language like this is the West, you know, versus I don't know if he's used terms like barbarism, but he has, you know, framed things in such a way where he definitely has more of a holy war mentality when it comes to the war on terror. Um, and it, but he also seems to have some uh, anti-Semitic beliefs or, you know, co like coded anti-Semitic beliefs. Um, and there's one instance in particular, I think it was Ben Norton who um, wrote about a transcript from an unreleased movie that he either produced or starred in called the Islamic States of America. And in it, he blames secularism, uh, but specifically secular Jews in the United mm -hmm. States for the reason of why, uh, so many liberals, you know, accept or embrace Islam, or, or I don't, I don't know if those are exact right. words, but um, I, and I, and and I think that this is, I, I think you've hit, you've really you've caught on to you're onto something here that this is part of, uh, you know, w what is coded ethno nationalism and anti semitism and Islamophobia all sort of rolled into one, and and, and I think you know it's certainly right right now I've been on the receiving end of or probably thousands if not tens of thousands of you know abusive tweets from from Breitbart readers since Breitbart published a hit on me yesterday and you know there's a real theme to 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 what they have to say to people who they think are working against um, what they believe are the interests of the United States and it's you know it's George Soros it's globalism uh, it's secularism uh, 
and 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 you know you, you can draw your own conclusions about what are exactly at the roots of this but anti-semitism comes into this in a big way pretty fast when you're saying that you know that Eli Clifton or whoever it is that you think is an enemy of 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 of, of your family and of your and of the world that you want it to be is you know part of George Soros's liberal Nazi Jewish conspiracy um, I mean, anytime you see the rants about George Soros, I think it's pretty cl- very quickly there's an undercurrent there of you know religion plays a role, uh, and and I think Breitbart and the alt right have managed to leverage that in ways that we just haven't seen until now. I completely agree with you on that. I mean, it's it. I when, as soon as I started seeing all those all that language being used you know, kind of combined together and, and yeah. actually spoken aloud by Trump. I think he even talked about globalism in his inaugural speech. Right, um, it was, uh, it's quite shocking because that, those words are familiar to me more from like the Alex Jones world, which yep. for a while at least didn't really seem to be, um, you know, leaning in an anti-Semitic direction. I mean, Alex Jones is actually one of the only, I would describe Patriot movement, um, you know, talk radio hosts who didn't really go into an anti-Semitic direction. So it's interesting to see those words all being used now when, when they're all together and uh, you start, you know, talking about it like that, it it really does take on this. It's barely coded. I mean, it does, it definitely does feel anti-Semitic and I'm just wondering, um, you know, if there's, you know, I don't want to make Bannon seem like he's this all-powerful puppet master, but was, you know, is that partly intentional to kind of, you know, create this wedge between, I guess, more, you know, secular uh, Jewish right-wingers and, you know, more of the Christian sort of white nationalist right-wingers? I don't, I don't know. Um, But it's, but there's more to, you know, the supposed anti-Semitism in the administration than just Bannon. Um, And you, you you know wrote about this guy Gorka, who what is his official position? He's uh, a deputy advisor to the president. Okay, so and he and he actually defended the Holocaust Remembrance Day omission of the yeah. Jewish people. Actually, um, he said criticism was asinine. Yeah, and so going to him because I I had never heard of him before I read your article about it, and it's it's quite interesting and and just bizarre. Um, who he is and the fact that he wears that medal. Um, he wore it at the, I believe the, uh, I don't know. He wore it at some events with Trump. So he wore it at the inaugural ball. Okay. (laughs) So yeah, explain, explain who he is. Um, for people who haven't heard of him and why he's so, so Sebastian Sebastian Gorka or Seb as his friends call him is a uh, let's see he's originally Hungarian he grew up in the United Kingdom his father he claims was uh, fought against the, the against the communists against the Soviets uh, in what must have been the fifties and sixties and uh, had to flee to the UK uh, and Gorka. Uh, has sort of turned himself into this self-styled terrorism expert, but his 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 stuff is just it's it's it, it's sloppy. His the way he talks about about the war against terror, he doesn't really offer any policy prescriptions other than that, of course, he supports the Muslim ban and uh, uh, and, and calling you know the enemy radical Islamic terrorism, uh, the standard stuff. His book, for instance, advised people to go buy guns and get concealed carry permits as a way of battling jihad. So this is a guy who's who's a bit out there and. And he seems to have had a number of, of, of contracts or teaching assignments at places 
with fairly impressive pedigrees, like the National Defense University, uh, and, uh, and 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 certainly did all sorts of uh, lectures and informational sessions for law enforcement uh, uh, agencies, local and national. He was at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies before he and his wife went and started their own organization. Uh, his wife's name is Catherine Gorka, and is they are very often seen as a team that work in collaboration. Uh, but what was really surprising is, yeah, he showed up at the inaugural ball wearing this uh, 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 outfit and a, a, a medal or a button showing the, the, the symbol of a Hungarian organization called Vitezi Rend. And Vitezi Rend is listed by the State Department as having been an organization which took direction from the Nazi government in Germany during World War II. Uh, members, people who were members of Vitezi Rend during uh, the war years would be considered possibly ineligible for U.S. visas based on the fact that they would be seen through their membership in this organization as Nazi collaborators. Uh, so it's an organization that, that hasn't done well for itself in terms of its own public diplomacy. It was uh, banned after the, the Soviets uh, uh, won the war in, in Hungary. And uh, sort of it went into it was I guess managed in exile or underground in Hungary. Uh, it was associated with uh, anti-communists, um, which does not preclude it from the fact that it was also, uh, by expert reports, still anti-Semitic, and that Jews are still not permitted in the ranks of this organization. I believe it in the early 80s, it became uh, something that existed publicly again, uh, in, in largely in the Hungarian diaspora, but, but now it actually does have its own uh, identity again in Hungary, where it's associated with the far right and with anti-Semitic and, uh, frankly, Holocaust revisionist efforts to paint uh, 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 Hungary's leader during the war years, uh, Miklos Horthy, as... A, uh, as an opponent of, of, of the Holocaust and of Adolf Hitler, when according to most stories, and there's varying reports, Horthy, who actually founded this order, Vitezi Rend, uh, was uh, essentially collaborated with Hitler, may or may not have been enthusiastic about the pace upon, uh, with which the Holocaust and, the, and the, the extermination of much of Hungary's Jews was occurring, but has openly said that he was anti-Semitic, uh, and he's photographed grinning with Adolf Hitler. So under these grounds, it's a little bit odd that an advisor to the president is associating himself with this group. Uh, he tried – he put out a video yesterday, Gorka did, uh, uh, trying to appeal the people's uh, sentimental side, I guess, saying that he, he wore it to commemorate his father uh, and, and the torture and mistreatment that his father underwent uh, uh, when he was uh, – before he fled Hungary. Uh, which uh, you know, I, I can respect his feelings toward his father, but it certainly is no excuse to be associating yourself with something that has a history, an ongoing uh, reputation of anti-Semitism and uh, um, and 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 of frankly collaborating with with some rather ugly forces. It's it's so bizarre. I mean, I I guess I just don't know what to make of some of this kind of stuff. It just seems almost too over the top to be real, but. Uh, I mean, it's actually happening. I, I read the Holocaust Remembrance Day statement for myself. Um, I thought it was very bizarre. Um, I just, I guess I'm just uh, still very confused about it and how uh, there's not more outrage. 
I mean, even just over the Holocaust Remembrance Day thing alone. Absolutely. And, 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 and I think the Holocaust Remembrance Day thing is really worth looking at closely because at one level, okay, nothing they said was inherently offensive. But when you put it in, the, in a broader context of just the anti-Semitism we've talked about, the, the use of globalists by, by, by Bannon and by Trump and by his supporters, the criticism of, you know, of, you know the sort of flirting with anti-Semitism, and then in the Holocaust Remembrance Day statement, they omit Jews as being explicit victims of the Holocaust, instead defending it, saying that there were lots of victims of the Holocaust. Well, that's true. There were lots of victims. Jews were the biggest victims. Uh, but when you're overarching, uh, when there's an overarching theme of, of, of framing Jews as being a malevolent force, it sort of takes on a different meaning when you're then trying to omit them from being victims. It absolutely does. And also, I mean, it, it reminds me of sort of, I mean, there's a lot of white supremacist tropes that are couched in this sort of like, you know, like logic. They're not, they're, they're not overtly anti-Semitic, but, you know, a lot of white supremacists will say, well, Stalin, you know, killed a lot more people. Like when you bring up Hitler, it's always about Stalin. Um, right. So it's just, there's all these little things that, you know, that exist in coded white supremacist culture that, you know, are very prevalent on the alt-right, but to see them actually in the administration is just absolutely mind-blowing. Um, I did not expect to see that. And, and, and tying it back to Gorka for just a moment, the the use the, the way that the Tezi Rend is defended is that they weren't anti-Semitic; they were anti-communist. Well, during World War II in Hungary, if you were anti-communist and anti-Soviet, you could also be a Nazi collaborator. <laughs> These are not mutually exclusive. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's remember who was fighting there. Yeah, good point. <laughs> so, I guess if Trump isn't impeached, um, you know, I guess let's let's end this with where do you see this going? Um, the Islamophobia, this undercurrent of anti-Semitism, um, and also sort of the Zionism too that seems to be part of Bannon's worldview. Um, that I don't, you know, I think even Breitbart itself was actually founded in Israel, or it was, I think the idea of it was like hatched in Israel. Um, and, and Bannon um, has, has several, has said things that imply that he has a Zionist uh, sort of worldview as well, just about Israel. Um, I, I don't know if you would agree with that, but um, where do, just where do you think this is going to go? Um, and what, I guess where where do you see some of the dangers moving forward? Well, I mean, in terms of Bannon, I, I I'm not entirely persuaded that he is a, that he's a Zionist in in the ways that you or I might 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 think of that term. I think it's a certain opportunistic embrace of Zionism to justify some of the most right wing policies coming out of Israel and some of the most right wing policies coming out of this country when it comes to the treatment of Muslims and the Muslim world. Uh, so th there's, a, there's a lot there's a lot for him to gain by embracing that to a very limited a limited embrace of it, um, and and I think that that's you know it, it, that is probably the, the the type of issue that we are going to be facing going forward is is how does this uh, you know fundamentally destructive and uh, uh, combative worldview uh, manifest itself in in really important 
uh, foreign policy challenges such as you know the Iran nuclear deal um, or the Middle East peace process in as much as it exists um, and even in other areas such as with North Korea and with the South China Sea with China how does this administration react to that when we know that there's at least one voice if not several within it with close access to the president generally pushing for the most destructive and combative responses possible uh, and I think that it's going to come down to we know we can probably predict some of the places this administration is going so far they've been very consistent in doing the things that they said they would do during the campaign and the question is you know how how, how do people resist it how can it be resisted um, and, and fundamentally you know looking toward the midterms uh, are Republicans going to pay a price for the fact that they to a limited degree have embraced this presidency uh, and, and I think that that's something that uh, there's going to be a lot of time and effort and money put into from from the left and from even moderates at this point to figure out you know how do you slow this down how do you undermine the the, the efforts that this administration seems destined to undertake um, and and I think also the, the important thing is that people are coming to the realization that this administration it's not they didn't they're not saying one thing and doing another they're simply doing what they said they were going to do, and we need to take them uh, at their word, and 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 start looking seriously about about the policy challenges coming forward. Agreed. And uh, there's there's a few promises that Trump made that he hasn't actually gone forward on yet, and and one of the ones that scares me the most is sort of this naked um, neo-colonialism that he's been um, projecting, like wanting to go and take Iraq's oil and and saying things like that. So. I'm not um, I'm not being naive anymore and thinking, oh, he's not going to do that. I mean, I, I, I think he probably will try to do something like that now. Um, yeah. So uh, and and I don't know if you're seeing this right now, but there's some breaking news about um, Netanyahu um, and him just did a press conference and Trump was asked, what would he tell Jews who are nervous about his administration fueling anti-Semitism? And a lot of reporters are claiming that he gave a non-answer to the question and, and actually just left it really open-ended. So that's – so it continues. <laughs> so um, it, it's, it's on the same trajectory, as I say. Like pe people, people uh, want to project way more complexity here than there is. They're, they're, they're doing what they said they were going to do. <laughs> they're quite consistent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Eli. And um, – Perhaps we should talk again uh, when, you know, after 100 days in to see if, if Trump really has fulfilled all these horrible promises that he's made. Oh, well, I, I hope that's not the case, but I'd love to come back. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you all so right. much. Thanks for having me.